The sermon text this morning is from the book of Romans, chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Well, this will be an easy one to preach. <clears throat> I'm thankful for his word. You know, when I was a kid, we um, <clears throat> used to go skating in this cove right by our house, and, and uh, it would often freeze over in the winter, and, uh, and we'd play ice hockey and go skating. And uh, my parents used to warn us, they, they always said, don't get too close to the edges. You know, the ice was thickest out in the middle, uh, but around the edges where the, where the beach was and the water was lapping against it, it was always the last to freeze hard. So if you go skating, <clears throat> get in the middle. Don't, don't, don't go to the edges. You can probably crash through. And I kind of feel like we're on the edges of this theology of election here. Uh, these verses, these chapters actually are some of the most difficult chapters in the Bible to understand. It is... Uh, it requires uh, clarity and humility. Humility to, <clears throat> not so much to understand it, I think you'll understand it. I think it's just more challenging to accept it. And, and I think you've, you've seen the, the shift that Paul makes in Romans chapter nine, um, where uh, th there's, a, there's, a, there's a shift so much that many scholars uh, Question whether Paul actually wrote this. Maybe a later editor, later insertion. Uh, it's, it's very different. You know, the first eight chapters are, are theological. They're about the gospel. They're about how a man or a woman uh, who are sinners are made right with God. And chapters 12 to 16, of course, are more practical in their nature. And that is, for a person who has been made right with God, how do they live? And then you've got this 9 to 11 which kind of just doesn't 
for many people, doesn't fit well in the overall book. But I think it does, actually. I think it's, I think it's even fairly logical that it should be here. Uh, you noticed in verse 6, the question was, has God's word failed? That, that's the, really the whole chapter is about trying to prove that God's word has not failed, hasn't failed. And, and, and I think this is important to discuss here, right now, particularly after chapter 8. You remember how 8 ended? Uh, that glorious, those last two verses? You know, I'm convinced that neither uh, life nor death, nor angels nor demons nor things present, nor things to come, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That is a glorious promise. I mean, that's just calling for us to be assured that God will do his perfect work in us, bringing us all the way to himself, fully saved. And you saw that back in chapter 8, verse 30, that he who has predestined, called, and he who called, justified, he who justified, glorified, so Paul, you know, that's a high-water mark of Romans, is chapter 8. Really, for many, the whole Bible. These promises of God are so profound that you can bank your life on that. Here's the dilemma. Why did the Jews reject Jesus? If, if they are, you could ask it this way, if, if the Jewish nation was God's chosen people, then why did they reject him? What happened to God's plan? Couldn't he get him over the finish line? Did God's plan tank? He made these promises. They had these privileges, and yet they didn't turn. They didn't finish in faith. And so the question is, did his promise fail? Did his word fail? This isn't just a historical question we're looking at you know, kind of dipping back in time, this is immediately relevant for you and for me. Because here's the deal. If his promise did fail, then how can you be assured it won't fail you? How do you know that you can trust Romans 8? You don't know. So the question is, did his promise fail? Is his word certain? Is God faithful, is the question. Is God faithful? Now, in the first five verses, we're going to look at what seems to be like God's faithfulness is actually being indicted or it's being questioned. It's like God's in the dock. Is God faithful to us? And then in verses 6 to 13, we'll see that Paul, that God's faithfulness is actually vindicated. Uh, Paul, in a way, you, you know, in the first part of the book, it's how our sinners justified before God. In a way, it's like Paul is justifying God to us. Not in the theological sense, but defending, explaining. He's going to take up the question, did, it did his word fail? No, no, it didn't fail at all. So let's look in the first five verses. Because, you know, you're going to see a different kind of Paul. You know, Paul is often seen as kind of a, a theological wonder. He's, he's super logical, and yet you see him very emotional here. I, I mean, he's very emotional over his own kinsmen rejecting Jesus Christ, persisting in unbelief. You see it in that threefold affirmation in verses 1 and 2 when he says, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, my spirit bears witness to me. I mean, Paul is really trying to make clear, listen, I have a love for these people. 
I am grieving over their rejection of the Messiah. You know, Paul was called the apostle to the Gentiles. And so, and so I just wonder if the word was out that maybe Paul didn't care so much about the nation of Israel. Maybe he didn't care. He's, he's worried about the Gentiles. And Paul's saying, no, I care very much. Notice what he says in 2, that his heart is full of sorrow, that, that it's burdened by this anguish. That's why you see him in verse 3 say these words, I wish myself accursed. That, that's incredible. I wish myself accursed. I don't think Paul thinks this is a theological possibility, but I think it shows you the depth of his sorrow over his own people persisting in unbelief towards Christ. I think he was like Moses, you know, when Moses asked God to blot him out rather than the people. You know, what it is, really, is it's a picture of the gospel. Paul's embodying the gospel, isn't he? I mean, Paul is wanting himself accursed for their salvation. Is this not what the gospel teaches us, what Jesus has done? For Jesus, it was a theological possibility. He was accursed that we might be saved. He did bear our sins. He did actually take the curse of sin that we labor under, and he has taken it upon himself that we would be delivered from this curse. That's why James Denny, a, James Denny, a Scottish theologian, said that, that for Paul, he's like a spark from the fire of Christ's substitutionary atonement. That he is just giving us a picture of what Christ has done for us. This is Paul's heart. It's a Christ-centered heart to the people. Now, I think you can understand this. I mean, especially you, if you're a parent, and you receive word, let's say, that your child has inoperable, incurable cancer. Would you not want to take it? Would you not, would you not want to take it if you could? I remember hearing, I remember hearing my father say that. When my brother was dying of cancer, he said, I wish I could have it. I wish I could take it. God, give it to me. This is a love that Paul has for those who are persisting in rejection to Christ. And this love, this loss, and this sorrow is compounded by all these privileges. Look at 4 and 5. I mean, he just rolls these privileges out. He says, they belong to them belong the adoption. They were drawn out of the world, not the other nations. The glory, that is the Shekinah glory that filled the tabernacle and filled the temple, and that ultimately we would see in Christ. The covenants, that is the promise made to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, promises made to David, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant and. Jeremiah, these promises of God to deliver, the giving of the law, they had the law. They had the Ten Commandments. They had the truth of God's stunning holiness. The worship, they knew what it was to approach a holy God. They knew the role of the priest. They knew the need for a sacrifice. He says that they were given the promises, the promises that a, a Savior would come. To them belong the patriarchs, that is, the, the men of faith in the Old Testament through whom God worked, revealing himself to this nation. And, and look at the last one. And from their race came the Christ, who is God and blessed forever. 
So I think Paul sees these incredible privileges, these staggeringly beautiful privileges, and they persisted in unbelief. Did God's promise fail? Did his word fail? That's the question. Uh, but, but before I answer that, let's just take a minute and look at Paul's heart. I mean, when you look at his heart and, and you line yours up to it, what level of concern do you and do I have toward those near and dear to us who persist in unbelief? Do we yearn deeply for them to know Christ? It's really telling of who we are. What level of risk do we take to engage them in a conversation over things that matter? What level of embarrassment or perhaps awkwardness are we willing to enter uh, that we might speak to them about the beauty of Christ? Or perhaps for some of you, what level of sacrifice would you take to leave your culture and to, for the sake of the nations, to speak of this gospel? Can we pray in this year of prayer and fasting? Because we're really dedicating ourselves this year through both prayer and fasting, let's pray together that God would give us hearts, hearts that are sorrow-filled, that are desirous of those that don't know Christ to know him. Uh, let, let it move in prayer and, and consideration. You know, let's pray for valiant hearts, not triumphant, not triumphant hearts, not arrogant hearts, not condescending hearts because they don't know what you know, but just hearts that are burdened for their salvation. And then let me ask you another question, and that is, do you understand the dire consequences of those who persist in, un in unbelief? I, I mean, Paul was willing to risk it all because he knew, he knew what awaited those who persist in unbelief. This is what drove him to be so sorrow-filled. He knew that there comes a day. Do you and I know that this day comes of judgment? Now what the scriptures teach, and if you're new to church, the scripture teach this judgment is the, the skies, the, the clouds part. And this Messiah, who was crucified, raised, ascended, will return. And when he returns, it will return, he will return with such power that those who have opposed him, according to Revelation 6, they will plead with the mountains to fall upon them, to crush them, rather than face the face of the Son of Man. Now, when you're pleading for mountains to crush you, there must be some great fear that is far greater than that that is coming. Can we pray for hearts that are acutely aware of the significance of the, of the future for those who persist in faith. I think that's what was driving Paul. Now, I was touched by a blog I read <clears throat> a few, uh, I guess it was a year ago, and it was really startling, and that's why it stuck in my mind, and I remember it a year later to bring it here, but it was a blog about, uh, it, well, it was a large article, but the, uh, there was a story in the article about a woman, a Christian woman, who went to a funeral and this funeral was over, uh, was for a woman who had died and had lived just a godless life. And, and she was vocal about her godlessness. She blasphemed God, didn't have any purposes with God, didn't give a care in the world and made that clear to everybody. So she clearly was, was anti-God in her posture in life. 
And so the preacher gets up and he begins to speak and says that, well, now we know that she's in a better place. You've heard that, right? They're in a better place. They're at peace now and that sort of thing. So this young woman got up and she said these words in front of the whole funeral, right? She says, it's a lie. She said, do not believe them. We will not all be in a better place. That hope is false. Only those who believe in Christ, the Son of God, the one who died and was raised, will be saved. Only those who repent and believe and follow him until the end will be in a better place. Wrath awaits all who die in sin. Please believe he stands ready to forgive you. You can just imagine the place was aghast. People were shouting. Ushers came up and brought her out of the sanctuary. But let me ask, was she right? She was right. I mean, that's what the scriptures teach. She was right. So, so let us be aware, let's pray for an acute awareness of the dire consequences for those who perish in unbelief. Charles Spurgeon, of course, in his own beautiful way, said these words. He said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with their arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. Let no one go unwarned, unprayed for. This is a heart. It begins with a heart. I'm not asking us to go forth and be absolutely obnoxious, failing to understand the sovereign grace of God. But let's begin with having hearts pricked so that they're sensitive and they understand the dire consequences. And if you're a Christian here, have you understood the privileges that you have? Uh, do you understand? You have the scriptures, the full scriptures. You have the spirit, you have the church, you have the evidence of the resurrection. Have you leveraged these privileges for God's glory in the growth and the knowledge of God's grace? Have you become too accustomed to them? Have we become almost entitled to these privileges without recognizing how privileged we are? They missed it. May we not. And if you're here today, and you're not a Christian, may I plead with you to consider the beauty of Christ. May, may I plead with you to, to consider the grace of God that he would furnish for us a son to bear our sins, to save us, to reconcile us to himself. Can I warn you that the Bible is very clear that the wrath of God rests on those who persist in unbelief or ambivalence to Jesus Christ. It, it's what do we do with Jesus? You know, Jesus himself said, he who honors me honors the Father. He who does not honor me does not honor the Father. Can I plead with you to consider that? Well, we have Paul here sharing his heart and his testimony over these Jewish brethren. Right? But the question still needs to be answered. The question needs to be answered, did his promise fail? And again, it's not just an emotional thing for us. It's a, it's a legitimate, relevant, uh, a relevant issue for us in the sense that will he be faithful to us? 
And so Paul answers that. And look with me at 6, because Paul will vindicate God's faithfulness. Paul will speak for God that will explain that in spite of the rejection of the Jewish people, uh, that no, God's word has not failed. Look what he says in 6. He says this, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. So he says that clearly. Now what he's going to do, and I, I want you to, to, gra- to just grab a hold of this, because this is where it gets a little bit murky. Uh, what Paul's going to do is he's going to prove that the word of God has not failed, but he's going to prove it through teaching us the doctrine of sovereign election. The doctrine of sovereign election is that God is free. He has the right to choose those whom he will save. This is a very difficult doctrine, but you're going to see it clearly this week and next week and the week following. But I want you to see that he gets into this difficult doctrine to prove that the word hasn't failed. He's not going off on a tangent here, just introducing doctrines that divide. He's actually saying, no, the word of God has not failed, and here's why we know it hasn't failed, because God sovereignly elects. And I think you see that as you walk through it with me. And I'm going to ask you to read through Romans 9 once a day for the next two to three weeks. Because I think as you read it, you're going to see it more clearly. He says this in verse 6. He says, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. What he's saying there is that even though there are many descendants of Israel, they may not belong to Israel. He's showing us really two Israels, if you will. An Israel of ethnicity, racial Israel, And then there's a true or a spiritual Israel. Look what he says in the next verse. He says, and not all are children of Abraham, because there is offspring. He had all these offspring, but not all are his children. So again, you see a distinction there. There's two groups, even though maybe under one banner. He says it again in 8. In fact, he explains, he says, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as the offspring. So you see yet another distinction between the children of promise and the children of Abraham. That it's the children of the promise that are true in spiritual Israel. He's giving us two pictures here. One is of Israel, those, the majority of whom rejected Jesus that they were the physical, the racial, ethnic Israel. But there's another Israel. There's a spiritual Israel. There's a true Israel. We see that in the language of the children of promise. They receive the promise. It includes Jews and Gentiles. In other words, the promise of God for salvation did not fail because it wasn't strictly given to just the physical descendants but it was given to those who are of true or spiritual Israel. His promise didn't fail. Not all Israel belonged to Israel. Now Paul's already referred to this back in chapter 2 when he says that there are Jews who are Jewish outwardly and there are Jews who are Jews inwardly. This is very important. What Paul's doing is he's shifting categories here to not think of God's people in ethnic terms. But God's people are not determined by ethnicity, by works, or by merit. 
but by his choice, his sovereign choice, which makes me, <coughs> excuse me, an Irish Italian Catholic who believes in Jesus as the Messiah from God sent to save the world, <coughs> more truly Jewish and more truly true spiritual Israel than a Jew in Jerusalem. This is, this is the Israel of God. This is the people of God, those whom God has chosen by his sovereign choice. And he gives us two examples. And he gives it to us from the Old Testament. First, he speaks about Abraham. And Abraham had two sons. Uh, one son was Ishmael, and that was through his servant Hagar. Another son was Isaac, and that was through the promise Ishmael was the son of a human union, a human effort to bring about a child. Isaac was a son of promise because he was born to Sarah, his wife, who had long since been barren, had long been barren, was past the childbearing years. God promised to them that you will have a son, and this son will be the one that brings about the promise for the peoples of the world. So Abraham had two sons, two physical descendants. Only one was chosen. Then he goes to the next generation, Isaac. Isaac, too, had, Isaac also had two sons, twins, Jacob and Esau. And they were born from the same wife. You see that in verse 10. He gives us more detail here. <clears throat> he says, Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. So what Paul's explaining here is one man, one wife, had twin sons. And before either were born, or before either had done anything good or bad, God chose Jacob, and he chose Jacob before so that we would see it's his purpose in election that he is advancing. He's showing, when he said the older will serve the younger, which is God reversing the way things were, showing that God is sovereign in giving the promise of salvation, and he chose Jacob and not Esau. Notice it says, not by works, but by him who calls. And this is how we get to this very challenging 13th verse. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Uh, Paul's like putting the final touch on God is sovereign. Now Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. I don't want you to think about those terms as emotional expressions. I want you to think of those terms as more stating preference. Now, Jesus used them in the same way. He says, if you want to follow me, you have to hate your father and mother. Well, of course Jesus wouldn't be calling us to hate our parents. But he's showing us in order of preference that your love for your parents isn't to even compare with your love for Christ. <clears throat> and so when he says that Jacob I loved, he says, Jacob, I have intervened and I have saved him. He, by the way, was a scoundrel. It was God's mercy. And that's the point. God's mercy alone that moved him to save him. Jacob, I hate it, just means that God did not intervene. Both men did not deserve salvation. 
But God exercises his sovereign pleasure, as he does in saving Isaac, not, and not Ishmael, Jacob, and not Esau. <clears throat> God's word didn't fail, because God's word of promise went to those for whom he chose. And they believed. All of them believed. This is what Augustine said, that God didn't choose us because we believed. God chose us so that we would believe. Now, <clears throat> I get this is very challenging. And I bet you right now in your mind, you may be thinking, hey, this isn't fair at all. <clears throat> or perhaps you're thinking, well, if this is the way it is, then why does he hold anybody blameworthy? Or why should we even evangelize? And if you have those thoughts, you understand what he's saying. Because he's going to get to those questions just next week. They ask the same questions. I want to handle just a few of the objections that come up in this. I'm not going to handle them all, and I probably won't handle them as thoroughly as I wish I could, but I'll handle some of them to help you understand, and then we'll hit more next week. But God's faithfulness was being indicted or questioned because of the rejection of the Jews, and Paul vindicates God's faithfulness by saying, you haven't understood the people of God. The people of God are those whom God has chosen for his own glory, sovereignly and freely, because he is God. Now, I know this brings up objections. One is, with the sovereign election, is it arbitrary? Is it kind of an eeny, meeny, miny, mo kind of thing? And I would say, no, not at all. God has purposes. Some of the purposes we understand. Some of the purposes are to show us the Christian, that there is no intrinsic difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. We're not somehow better. If you believe in Christ and you've claimed him as the Messiah, the one that God has sent, unique among all, who has come, the God-man, to deliver us, that's not because you're better. It's not because you're smarter. It wasn't because you're more intelligent. No, he has purposes. And many of these purposes go beyond our understanding. You know, it's the secret counsels of God in Deuteronomy 29. He has purposes, and they will stand. Some of them we won't know till we see them. They have not been fully revealed to us. So it's not arbitrary. Someone asked, well, is sovereign election that important to cause this kind of rankle in a church when you teach it? And I'd say, oh, it's very important. Because without sovereign election... Grace cannot be grace. If you add to, if you participate in, even by your decision, if, if that's part of the salvation process, then grace is not grace. So if you're sitting and you're thinking, no, 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 here's how it works, Tom. Maybe you just don't understand. But you know, God looks down the halls of time and he sees that you're going to believe in him and so he elects you based upon your choice. But then isn't his choice still contingent upon yours? And isn't anything that we bring to the table, doesn't it begin to minimize that free gift that we understand grace to be? John Stott, theologian, great theologian of the 20th century, recently died, wrote these words. He says, if we are responsible for our own salvation in whole or even in part, we'd be justified to sing our own praises, blowing our own trumpets in heaven. 
Such a thing is inconceivable. I often ask this of people when they struggle with the doctrine. I'm like, well, why do you believe and your brother doesn't? Oftentimes there's a sibling that doesn't believe. I say, why do you believe and he doesn't? You, you heard the same gospel. You went to the same churches. You were raised by the same parents. You had many of the same experiences. Why do you believe and they don't? And they're all forced to say, I don't know. Because nobody has the courage to say out loud, I'm a little brighter. I, I, I got the message a little more clearly. I, I was always a little more intuitive than he was. Nobody has the guts to say that. And it's probably not true anyways. The reality of it is that, that no, God has shined favor on you. And another question is, does sovereign election make God a monster? And I would say no. It's absolutely the other way. It makes him good. God is sovereign. God has purposes and plans that he does not leave to chance and choice of our changing whims. God has a purpose and a plan for salvation for a people, for his glory and for our good. This, this idea threatens us when we have a man-centered world when we live with self-autonomy and self-determination. This is a threat if you think that God is a democratic God and he gathers us together and we're going to decide together and he's persuadable and I can bring my arguments to him and I'm going to change his mind and I'm going to inform him on areas that he's not really clued in on. Then it will threaten you. But I, I, he is sovereign and his purposes will go as he has perfectly designed them to go. But this doesn't mean he's not merciful. He didn't spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. We see the mercy of God. What sovereign election shows us is that he alone is worthy of our glory. Because there's nothing that we have done to say that now we believe in Jesus Christ. There's nothing we've done. I just want to give you a... Uh, one more quote from Spurgeon, and I think you can identify with it. It helps understand his sovereignty. He says, I believe in the doctrine of election because I'm quite sure that if God had chosen me, if, excuse me, I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure that he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for some reasons unknown to me, for I could never find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with such special love. So sovereign election doesn't make God a monster. It makes God so kind and compassionate to help the people who could not help themselves. Now, does sovereign election, does it leave us to just resignation and fear? Does it leave us to just, well, we can't do anything, so we don't do anything? No. Remember now, in chapter 10, Paul's going to say this. He's going to say, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Uh, Paul's laboring, he's preaching, he's praying. That's what we do. We're going to see in chapter 10. You know, chapter 9 is all about God. Chapter 10 is all about human effort. Uh, God is going to weave our human effort into his sovereign purposes where our choices and our works matter. They matter, seriously. And, and, and they're going to participate with God in the advancement of his own plan. 
It shouldn't lead us to fear. I, I know many mothers, the first time they hear election, the first thought is, are my children elect? Maybe you're thinking, am I elect? That's not a question that Scripture asks. Scripture asks, do you believe in Jesus Christ? It doesn't ask about election. Paul, remember, is giving us this doctrine to show why God's word hasn't failed. Many people will be saved and don't believe in election. They'll understand it, but they don't believe it in this life. Now, if you're concerned, if you're thinking, am I elect? Well, let me ask you, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you trust the safety of your soul upon him who came, took on flesh, lived among us, was crucified for our sins, was raised from the dead, ascended to the Father at the right hand, coming back in glory to gather his people fully and consummate his salvation and beauty. If you believe that, yes, rest. If you're struggling and you're not certain and you don't know that you've ever put your trust, remember, Jesus stands ready to save. He says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened. I will give you rest. Come to me. Come to me by faith. Bring your sins. Throw them at my feet. That's all that we bring to him. I want you to rest. And, and then last, I would say, does sovereign election harm our faith? Does it harm our faith? No, I don't think it harms our faith. I think it is the foundation of it. You cannot believe in Romans 8 apart from Romans 9. The promises that he gives are assured to us because of his prior work in saving us by his sovereign grace and continuing us. If my salvation, if the completion and enjoyment of my salvation rests upon me to finish it out well, I don't have a prayer. But I rest even though I'm a broken sinner, I rest that I will be saved in his hands because he has done a prior work and promised to me that he will complete the work. What is harmed is our pride and our love to boast. That's what's harmed. And that's what's meant to be crushed by this doctrine. We sang it. We only boast in the Lord. We make no boast in ourselves. That's why the church should be marked by a massive humility and gratitude over one who has done a work that we could never do. Not only has God chosen us, he has furnished a son to die for us, be raised for us, and he has given us the spirit to open our eyes to it all and see him as a great, glorious, triune God. Now, I don't think that I am uh, persuasive enough to convince people in one sermon of this truth but I pray I've moved you forward a step. Uh, coming to a, a firm conviction of the doctrine of sovereign election, uh, one at least that leads us to worship and joy takes time. It takes time. Hey, that's why I want you to keep reading. And we're going to keep going through Romans 9. But I want to encourage you in the words of Jonathan Edwards. He was a great theologian in the Northeast in the 18th century. And this is his own testimony because he struggled with the doctrine. But he said these words, he said, from my childhood up, my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty and choosing whom he would to eternal life and rejecting him whom he pleased. It used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me, but I have often, since that first conviction, had quite another kind of sense of God's sovereignty than I had then. 
I've often since had not only a conviction, but a delightful conviction. The doctrine has been often, has very often appeared exceedingly pleasant, bright, and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God, but my first conviction was not so. So let's pray together about this. Even, even for these moments that we have just after the sermon, ask God for wisdom, ask God for grace that he might apply these things. If, if your heart is burdened after the sermon, then speak to the person who you came with or come forward. We'd love to discuss it. Begin reading through Romans 9 and Romans 10 and Romans 11. It's a unit. Do it over. We're going to be covering it over the next two months. Uh, this is essential for us to find all of our joy in God and to make all of our boast in God. Let's take a minute now and just silently ask God for this kind of wisdom. <laughs>